Okay, so hopefully you'll see my PowerPoint there. So, look, Ted Stryker. Does that ring a bell? Ted Stryker, yeah. an 80s film? Airplane. Airplane. Did you guys, was that a hit in this country? Yeah, it's called Airplane. Well, look, Ted Stryker is an ex-fighter pilot, traumatised by the war. Yeah, he's now got a drinking problem. That means that whenever he drinks, he splashes it all over his face. That's his problem. It's a comedy. He's on this flight from Los Angeles to Chicago. It's doomed. Uh, there's an issue with the pilot. And, and so, look, because of, his, because of his trauma and he's estranged from his wife, Elaine, on the plane, every time the, the, the shot comes on to him, he's telling his story all over again in every detail to the passenger. And passenger after passenger, they commit suicide one by one. <laughs> You know, because they, they just can't bear put up with this guy going on and on and on. And finally, the last one is this Indian fella. He's, he's doused himself in petrol. He's about to ignite himself when the airship saves his life by calling Ted away. Okay. The point is this. Ted is so wrapped up in his own life and story that he's forgetting there are people out there. Can you see the point? Ted really caricatures all of us to some degree. You see, we can be so wrapped up in our own circumstances, in our own moments, sometimes in very important things, but we can forget that there are other people who are hurting, that others also have a story to tell. That others also need a moment where they can talk and share their story. So that's where we're going this morning. That that we're not to forget that there are people out there. It's the second in our series. So the first one, if you remember last week, we looked at the healing of the woman at the well. And our approach was that, that we overlooked the main theme of the passage and we came at it topically and had a look at this sub-theme in the passage. Does anyone remember what the sub-theme was that we drew out of the passage? Water. It was about water. We said that Jesus alone, that's not going to help you, that's this week's. Jesus alone, yeah, chooses the members of his community. We says that we're not to judge on appearances and that Jesus alone chooses who he adds to his church. So today is part two of the same series, A Gospel-Shaped Community, and you can see there already. Our heading this morning is, we mustn't forget that there are people out there. We mustn't forget that there are people out there. Let's begin. We're working right through uh, this portion of Mark 2. Again, like last week, our focus won't be the main point of the passage, which is which we would normally do. Uh, we're coming at it topically, so there's a sub-theme here that we're focusing in on. Number first one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, the location, being his home location. This isn't his house, necessarily. So many gathered that there was no room left, nor even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. 
So Capernaum up north is his base of operation. Okay, It's his home area. This particular house, probably not his, and it may well be, commentators suggest Peter or Andrews, one of the disciples. And it's, it's somewhere where he's intended to stay, it seems. And once there, as you've seen on the line there, notice what he's doing. He's there, and what's he doing? Preaching the word to them. Jesus' primary message is why we've taken his interest in FIEC. Okay? Jesus' primary ministry. You tell me, what was Jesus' primary ministry? Before the cross, during his three years, what was his primary ministry? Yes, how, how did he disciple? By preaching the word. In fact, in Mark 1, he tells us precisely that Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. And what's his rationale? How does he finish? That's why he's come. Okay, straight from Jesus' lips, his primary ministry is to preach. And so, so in chapter 2, here he is, and he's doing precisely that. Here's what a commentator says. Jesus is not working miracles inside the house. He was doing what he came to do, preaching the gospel to people. Preaching, friends, and, and so why we got our logos, why we got the banner outside at Bible Teaching Church, preaching the word is primary in Christianity. Jesus exemplified that. And his apostles continued the tradition. Acts 6, when they're appointing the first deacons in the church. Why did they do it? Does anyone remember? It's on there. What was the purpose of appointing these deacons to take care of the practical leadership of the church? What was their rationale? So they could preach. And so it's not a surprise then when Paul is on his deathbed virtually about to be executed... He's got his prodigy, Timothy. He's to leave him in charge of the church. What does he insist that Timothy must do? Yeah. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. Timothy, preach the word. When? All the time. In prepared, in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patient instruction. Preaching the word it's something that a church must never lose. It's fundamental. It was fundamental to Jesus, to his apostles. It must be fundamental to us. And so here's the reality. No matter how much we advance, how diverse and contemporary churches become, if we lose preaching the Bible, and by preaching the Bible we mean chapter by chapter, book by book. Otherwise you're not preaching the Bible, are we? It's got to be chapter by chapter, book by book. The hallmark of authentic church is that the church is preaching the word. Here's what uh, theologians have said historically. Here's a key theological statement. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in pure preaching of the gospel. There's other elements to sacraments, discipline. Incidentally, we don't like to think discipline is a good thing. Discipline is a fundamental mark of the church. 
fundamental. So preaching, it continues. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God. And listen to this. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church. Where there's no regular preaching, no faithful exposition of the word, and by that we mean faithfulness to the text, in context, to what he's saying, then we're not making disciples. I mean, we've got it here, haven't we? It's going to be on the next text too. That we make the only, on the next text please, the only way that a church makes disciples is by teaching. See, it's not optional. So some churches have preaching, other churches have a lot of experience. No, it doesn't, it's not that kind of option. It's preaching, which may accompany experience, but preaching centered. Because here's, here's the truth, here's the reality. See, we can have, without preaching, we may have a happy club, but we don't have a church. Without preaching, we may get an emotional boost when we turn up, but we don't have a church. Without preaching, we may see the supernatural, but we don't have a church. Without preaching, we may even see hundreds of people attend, but we don't have a church. A church is fundamentally marked out by this one distinctive above every other distinctive. It teaches Jesus' word. So we want to be, if we want to be true to living word church, we've got to keep preaching the word. So that's what's going on here. It's not the center of the sermon we're looking at today. Because here's the thing. Preaching must be primary, and I like that as a foundation, because of what's coming next. However, but, okay, you have to, I can't quite get my emphasis out today, so you can imagine I'm saying this much more loudly than I'm saying it just now. But, we mustn't forget that there are people out there. Did you hear that? Preaching must be primary, but, we mustn't forget that there are people out there. Let's carry on with the passage. You'll see where we're getting our point from. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Desperation is a desperate situation. Look, to tear up someone's roof in order to get a viewing with someone inside, okay, this is a pretty desperate scenario. I want to look at it with you, okay? Look, we're piecing together a scene that's lacking detail. So here's, here's the best that I could do, both reading commentaries and using imagination and experience. Here's what's going on. Okay, so we've got four guys here. They travel with their friend to Jesus' location. We're not sure how far they've traveled, but you're traveling with a paralytic, Four of you through narrow streets in a hot country. It's going to be pretty, pretty tough. Tough, okay? Okay, okay. You get there. The thing about Jesus, you can't be certain he's going to be there when you got there, when you get there. I mean, he's highly in demand. So these guys finally get there. They can hear Jesus' voice. You can imagine the relief. He's still here. He's still here. But it's an issue. What's the issue? They can't get to him. 
Okay, the street is full. These are narrow streets. The house is jam-packed. Jesus is hemmed in. There's absolutely no way they can get near to Jesus. He's in mid-flow of his, what was he doing? His sermon. So what would you do? Come on, look. What would any rational, normal person do? Wait. Why won't they wait? Think it through, Eugene. Think about the situation. Why won't, why don't they, why, why can't they wait? It's desperate to see Jesus. That is it. There's a little bit more, Brenton. Yes, there's a little bit more. Why won't they wait? Why not wait? Yes. What would happen the minute he's finished? You can't guarantee that the minute he finishes, the 12 henchmen that protect him, his bodyguards, whisk him away. You can't be sure that he's, going to, he's not going to be too tired. Okay? The reality is, if they don't get Jesus now, you know, they may lose the moment. It's urgent. It's either now or possibly never. They can't wait. Now, there's four of them and they're crippled. One of them, at least, has got some building knowledge. Really. You know, one of them, at least, understands something about how something's constructed. So they come up with the most incredible, ingenious idea. Okay? Jesus is hemmed in. They can't get their friend to Jesus. But that also means what? See, that's both a negative and a positive. Jesus is trapped. Can you see? That means Jesus isn't going anywhere. Can you see? It's the best moment. Can you see? That means Jesus is trapped. If, therefore, if they can get their friend Jesus to Jesus somehow, they've got a captive audience. Jesus cannot refuse to say no in front of tens and tens of people. It would be humiliating, wouldn't it? So it's, they've got a captive audience in Jesus. So one of them, no doubt with some building experience, obviously suggests, hey, the roof. Now look, when you're thinking the roof, come on, you think, come on. You know, this is a major construction job. Have you ever taken a roof? Have you ever tried to lower a person through a roof? Tracy, ever tried it? It's a major construction. You think it is, but it's not in that world. In that civilization, roofs were less complex than our roofs. These are pretty simple. These are pretty simple houses, pretty small houses, okay? Pretty simple construction. Here's what, what a commentator says. A slope roof consisted of wooden cross beams overlaid with matting of reed branches and dried mud. It had to be replenished and rolled away and renewed every year because of the rains. Okay? So it wouldn't have taken a lot. You, know, you, weren't a, you, weren't, you didn't need a bulldozer okay, to do this. It was a relatively simple task. And this thing was stripped back every year anyway. I mean, it's not like... Major, So they do something that wouldn't have been so outrageous as it may seem to us. It does sound a bizarre thing, you know, it sounds almost implausible, implausible. It wasn't so much in the context. So they begin. Okay, so they begin, first of all, there would have been probably been tiles after the mud, at least in some cases. So maybe the tiles are being moved, which is relatively simple, okay? Now, then begins, you've got the beams and you've got the compacted dirt. So what implements do you think they would have brought with them for digging? None. They haven't come to dig through the roof, have they? They weren't expecting the crowd, or at least to that degree. So how are they digging? What's their implement? 
This is raw desperation. Okay. Now, how big a hole? Now, are they going to lower this man vertically? They've got to dig a hole at least. Five, if you're in Aussie land, nine foot, nine feet. Okay, but back in Israel, probably five, six feet. This could be at least five, six feet wide. Presumably, the beams are wide enough apart so that he'll fit the one way. He can't move beams easily. So presumably, they're just moving the compacted earth at least five, six feet. Okay, now he's ready to go in. Go in. Now they can lower him to Jesus. What's the next problem they've got? They haven't come with ropes. Okay, where would he be in the house? Presumably they've done it right above the voice. How are they going to get him down? Because there's no ropes here, is there? Where would, what would they have? What is the only way they could have possibly lowered the man down? Their clothes. How many of them are there? Four. How many corners to that bed? Four. Four people, four items of clothing, four corners. And all of a sudden, you've got a makeshift rope system. Now, one by one, you're able to lower Jesus down. Lower the cripple down to Jesus. It's brilliant, isn't it? Okay, so that's from the scene outside, camera shot one. Let me give you camera shot two. When they go inside, okay? Jesus is hemmed in, okay? Here's how he looks from the inside. What's Jesus doing just as they begin digging? We've said it. His preaching is in full flow. No doubt the room is silent. All of a sudden, the tiles are being moved. So, what are the people thinking? Well, before the dirt, just the tiles. Jacob? Jacob, did you tie up your goat? Okay? So, it could be anything at this juncture, okay? It's just a little commotion, but the tiles go next. What's happening? All of a sudden, what can you see through the roof? Light. Okay, so now, if you can see light, this is compacted dirt. Compacted dirt has been taken out, but what is happening, happening simultaneously? Comp dirt is falling down. Okay, so dirt is falling down. There's now a commotion. Things are falling. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon. What are the people thinking? Well, possibly, but what are these people who are listening to a sermon thinking? Well, it's possibly that, but now what are they thinking? They're listening to a sermon in peace and quiet. Annoying. I mean, I mean, it's like, hello, don't they realize there's a sermon going on here? Okay? What are these four men effectively doing to this preaching service? They are hijacking it. Okay? There's no preaching going on now, okay? There's no way you can listen to a sermon when there's debris falling on your head, there's loud noises. Do you think Jesus was still preaching when debris was falling in front of him? There's no possible way. So they completely hijack a preaching service, okay? There's surely real annoyance from the crowd. What about the preacher? His mission is to preach, okay? That's what he's there for. In chapter 1, we're told that was his purpose. Okay, he's in full flow in his sermon when the disturbance begins. Now, look, you've, a lot of people have done something public speaking. You're publicly speaking, a baby starts crying, okay? That's pretty hard to preach through. 
Someone gets up, they're in the middle of the middle in the middle seat, and they want to drink, and having to push through five people. Okay, that's difficult to preach through. Okay, someone collapses in the middle of the service, in the middle of your sermon. Now, what's that like to preach through? Someone walks in, a family walk in, kids and all, who've obviously never been to church before. You try preaching through that. Look, this is becoming a pretty difficult situation to preach through. Jesus would have had to stop, without doubt. Okay, so let me ask you, what is Jesus feeling right now? He knew, okay? He knew. Humanly speaking, at least, for a moment, assuming that he didn't. Okay, this is disturbing his primary work. Okay, it's just possible annoyance, maybe even anger. Because look, these people are destroying his preaching service. Here, I remember back uh, in the early days when we moved in the building here, there's a lady sitting just next to Ben there. We won't mention her name to save embarrassment. She was sitting just there behind you, actually. She stood up with some other ladies. Sylvia was in front as we were about to sing. And all of a sudden, this lovely lady like a domino onto Sylvia and the people. Now, look, there was, do you know what happened? Nobody even noticed, we just carried on. Is that the case? No, it wasn't the case. Okay, okay, this brought the whole thing in. I think it was singing at the time. It brought the whole thing to a form of halt whilst we dealt with this emergency. But imagine I was in the middle of my sermon, in mid-flow, at, at my most important point, all of a sudden, the person collapses. Okay, major, possible heart attack. Now, could you imagine I just carry on preaching? Could you imagine everybody in the room just ignores that situation? Says, he's preaching, don't stop. Just pretend it hasn't happened. No, no, this is major, isn't it? It's major. Right in the middle of Jesus' preaching session, verse 2, he's preaching the word to them. These four men disrupt the proceeding, hijack the service. What's Jesus thinking? What's going through his mind? How uptight is he? How angry is he? Verse 5. Well, that's lovely because exactly what Jesus says, verse 5. Listen, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. What does Jesus do with this interruption? He, yes, he stops and he ministers to the guy. Can you see the point? He stops and ministers to the guy. Here's a comment, commentary. Jesus continued to preach the good news to them, for that was his purpose. It must therefore have been a great temptation for him to be irritated when the four men, anxious to get their friend healed, lowered him through the broken roof in front of Jesus as he taught. It would have been natural for him to be irritated, at least. But instead, Jesus saw their faith. And look, and it's not as though, look, it's in mid-flow of his sermon, he just quickly zaps the bloke. Boom, go, out, done. Can we go now? Can we carry on now? It's not as though he just zaps him and heals him, is it? 
He makes a son and dance of the situation. Look at this. Okay, he doesn't just heal him. He says, son, your faith, Jesus saw his faith as a son, your sins are forgiven. He stops everything. Son there is a Greek word, technon. I think you're going to see there in the next slide. Okay, it means child. To call an adult a child, what, what does that suggest? If you said son to a grown bloke, what's that suggesting? What am I expressing when I say that? Endearment. Can you see? Son. You know, let me help you with that. Can you see? It's a term of endearment. Is Jesus annoyed? annoyed? Is he irritated? Is he angry? No. He's stirred and moved with compassion. Son. Your sins are forgiven you. Notice the level of care. Like I said, he doesn't just zap him and send him away, which he could have easily done. In fact, when he heard the commotion on the roof and he knew exactly what was happening, what could Jesus have done ever before they lowered him? Why do that? Why do that? Think again. You know, it's too complicated. Think again. This, he could have just said, you're, you're here, mate. Sorted. Can you see the point? Remember the centurion when he says, don't even come to my house, Jesus, just... Can you see the point? He, did, he let it happen, okay? And here it is. And so he's going to give this man com complete healing. You see, Jesus doesn't just deal with him superficially to, to shut him up and get him out, like we may be tempted to do, quickly, just give him what he wants and get rid of him. No, it's not superficial, it's comprehensive. Why do I say that? The care package that Jesus gives this guy is comprehensive. Why do I say that? He became a teaching thing. But what does he do? He doesn't just heal him. What does he do? Partly that, yes. Something more. What were you going to say, Morak? Yes. Because you see, this guy, if he just sent him away walking, when that guy died, what was he going to face? God and God's wrath. Okay, so Jesus deals with his most pressing need. He assumed his most pressing need was so he can walk. If he could walk, then he could do what? What can't this man do? You see, you may think paralysis is not that big a deal. You just get one of those go machines. What did his paralysis mean for this man? Couldn't go to, to couldn't worship probably worse than and also. You couldn't work. If you can't work, you don't eat. You don't eat. Okay, so his most pressing need is he needs to be able to work, get a job. Jesus knows that his most pressing need is sin. Son, your sins are forgiven you. So he deals with his sin and then deals with his need. Verse 10, he said to the paralytic, after forgiving me his sin, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go. He got up and took his mat and walked out in full view. He came down on the mat. And walked out carrying his mat. And you're thinking, why didn't he do that the first time? Well, it's because he was a cripple. Okay? So he came down on the mat and walked out. Incidentally, you know, again, I don't want to put too much time into what's going on here, but just to tell you, I mean, you may remember from Christianity Explored, why does Jesus do this miracle in this way? Why does he talk about the sins being forgiven and then heal the man? Can anyone remember what's going on here? Well, it is that. Okay, but then he goes, which is easier, to heal the man 
or to forgive him his sin? Let me ask you, which is easier? To heal the man or to forgive him his sin? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or you're healed? No, your sins. That's easy to say. Your sins are forgiven. Wow. But if I said to you and you were crippled, walk, that's a much harder thing to say. So the hardest thing to say is get up and walk. Why does Jesus talk about sins? So Jesus says your sins are forgiven. He's speaking words. They mean nothing to me. But he also speaks a word when he heals him. What does he say? Verse 11. What does he say? Take up your mat and walk. And when he says that, what is the man able to do? Walk. So the logic is this. When Jesus issues a command or says something, there's visible evidence that it takes place. So therefore, when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven you, Although there's no visible evidence that that could occur, because you've just seen what Jesus says happens, that confirms that Jesus can truly forgive sins. Can you see? That's what's going on. He's proving by using his word to heal the man. He's proving that what he says about his sin also occurs. So he heals the man completely. So here's the, here's the point then. Jesus, on interruption in mid-flow of his sermon, puts everything on hold and passionately and comprehensively ministers to the man in front of him. So we're going. Let me tell you a joke, a couple of jokes. They, they won't be funny, but I'll tell you the jokes anyway. Look, simple one-worders. You, you've heard of this. Look, John says to David, look, can you see the forest over there? To which he responds... I can't see. The trees are in the way. Okay? No, I can't. The trees are in the way. Or, or, or there's one from um, uh, the film Naked Gun. Look, I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, if you're anywhere as old as me, it makes me like 24, doesn't it? Okay? If you're anywhere near as old as me, okay, does you remember Naked Gun? Okay, so Frank uh, Drebin uh, uh, is on, you know, he's a police officer trying to catch these crooks. Uh, they invite him to this deserted... Uh, I think it's a paint yard. Uh, and when he gets it all by himself late at night, a guy comes out with a gun and he goes, Look, I've got this message from you from the boss. Okay? And then starts shooting at him. Okay? okay? And, and, and Drebin manages to avoid all the bullets. And when all the bullets runs out, Drebin shouts, Sorry, I couldn't hear with all the bullets going on. Could you repeat <laughs> yourself, please? Okay. Can you see the point? He couldn't see the point. You see, sometimes we can't, yeah, sometimes we can't see the wood for the trees. That's the point. Sometimes we can't see the wood for the trees. In retail business, they continually drum this mantra, don't they? The customer is the business. Customers are not our problem. Customers are our business. This guy runs a business. If he treated his customers like muck, there wouldn't be customers. Okay? You see, in ministry, friends, we mustn't forget that there are people out there. Can you see the point? People are not a nuisance to our ministry. They are our ministry. They are not obstacles they are the purpose of ministry. Ministering to people 
is what ministry is. I want to ask, do we ever forget that? Do we sometimes miss the tree, the wood for the trees? Look, a famous preacher once asked the pastor how he's getting on in his ministry, and his response was, well, if I didn't have to do five funerals, two weddings, one disciplinary case, okay, I will be fine. I could get on with studying the Bible and praying and preaching. Can you see the point? You see, friends, people are our business. That is ministry. A pastor's role is not exclusively to sit here and preach or in his office and study. I'd love it if I had 50 hours, 60 hours every week. I could just lock myself away from all you trouble, troublemakers and, and, and just study and just pray. And then on Sunday, just only step out at 10.46, sit here, do the sermon and just go back in there. That'd be wonderful. Seriously, I'll do that free. <laughs> but people are a ministry. When you look at Jesus, you see that he was continually demonstrated a wanted disregard for convention. He was always allowing himself to be distracted by people. Always. Just look at his ministry. I'll give you two examples. But everywhere he goes, he was always allowing himself to be sidelined from what he was meant to be doing. Always. Luke 13, he goes to the Sabbath, uh, to, uh, to the synagogue. There's a woman there bent over backwards. She, she's a cripple. She can't stand up straight. It's the Sabbath. Every good Jew knows you don't. You don't work on the Sabbath. This woman's been a cripple all her life, okay? Virtually. What does Jesus do? What? I don't know why he does it. What does he do? He does heal her. With all the provocation that entails, why didn't he just wait till tomorrow, for goodness sake? Can you see the point? Why didn't he just wait? Listen to him. Should this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath from her womb? Can you see his point? This woman has suffered enough. Why should I, when I have the power right now to free her, why should I allow her to suffer for a moment more? Can you see this point? In Mark 5, Jesus has been called by Jairus, the synagogue ruler, to go and heal his daughter. She's on a deathbed. He's on his way there. Now, now look, she's about to die. Jesus says, I'll come straight away. Now, on priority, you know, where would you put that? High. So Jesus, so Jesus is walking through. Some diseased, unclean woman touches him. What does he do? Stops and makes a commotion. He turns the whole thing into a song and dance. He's meant to be going to Jairus' daughter's house to go and heal this poor girl before she dies. Here's Jesus. I mean, you're Jairus. Jesus isn't making a song and dance. Who touched me? Oh, come on, Jesus. Hello. You know, well, you're Jairus. What are you thinking? Hurry up. Come on, Jesus. Yes, sir. Come on, Jesus. But Jesus insists 
on making the whole thing into this big farce, this big scene. Who touched me? Okay, and then finally when the woman comes forward, look at him, look how he speaks to her. Don't you know I'm in a rush? No, no. Daughter. This is not a little girl, is it? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Okay, it's the same, it's not the same, but a similar Greek word, okay, thugate, okay, similar Greek word, it means daughter, as it says, suggests here, but again, being used as a term of endearment, okay, Jesus ministers to her in spite of the urgency, and in fact, as a result, possibly of this delay, what happens? Imagine Lazarus's thoughts here. So, friends, here's the point. It's possible to be so engrossed in our ministry as a church to preach the word, that is our ministry, that we can sometimes miss the blatant need in front of us. We can be so engrossed in, I'm preaching, that we miss the obvious need Staring us in the face. Here's what James says. James chapter 2. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Can you see? I mean, Bonnie's been sharing, but they preach the gospel to the Indians. But what do they do for them first? They give them water. They give them food. Can you see? That's James' point, you see. He goes, yes, they need the word. But you can't miss the obvious, present, urgent need. In gospel work, you see, when we encounter need, we have to put our tools down and meet need. When we're preaching the gospel and we encounter a need, we sometimes have to stop the sermon, feed somebody, give them medical care or a bed to sleep in for the night and then resume the sermon. Can you see the point? Galatians 6 says, let us do good to all people and that good takes priority even of preaching the word. So demonstrates Jesus. Can you see? As primary as preaching is, when we're confronted with need, Jesus demonstrates he's prepared to stop preaching to meet human need. I'm going to give you three examples as we close. Three examples of what this may look like. Trouble is, see, so far it's really safe because it's not really like, you know, it's not really hurting, just it's going to hurt now, okay? Okay. Illustration number one. It's the morning service. Now. Okay. Now. We've waited all week to come and hear the sermon. The pastor has spent all week preparing the sermon. He's in the mid-flow of his sermon. He's in the most enthusiastic part of the service. He's jumping around. His voice is raised. And he's making his best point in the sermon when all of a sudden the double doors open and a tribe of eight people, five kids, three adults, walk through the door. Okay, they're bumping into each other. They're crying and yelling. 
Okay? Right in the middle of the, ser- of the sermon, what does the preacher do? Preacher, first of all. Here's what's going on. I say, I can't do that. I can't do quite as well as I want. But imagine. How can I preach with all that going on? Why are the deacons just sitting there? Why don't the deacons get up and shut that family up so that I can finish my sermon? Don't they know how far I travel to get here tonight, today? Why don't they? Maybe he could even do this. Oi! Sit down and shut up and show some respect for the preaching of the word. Let me show you the congregation. What's going on there? Why don't they just be quiet? Harry, why don't they shut up? Don't they know? Don't they know? There's a sermon going on here. I'll tell you what. Just put your head down. Don't turn around. Pretend they're not there. Okay? Pretend we haven't heard. Just keep listening. They'll go away if you ignore them. Here's, here's what the response should have been. Here's what the response should have been. The pastor should have, should have shut up himself. Okay? The pastor should have shut up himself. Right? Stepped off his high horse and gone practice what he preaches. Okay? He should have been the first to go and minister to the family. Number two, the congregation. There should have been a stampede to run back there and drive out the family. No. <laughs> there should have been a stampede. Who could get there first? Who could get their wallet out first? Who could make the calls? Who could sit them down? Who could minister to them first? Can you see? The point, that's what Jesus would have done in that situation, says Mark 2. Can you see the point? Let me give you another one. Second one is, so you've dropped into McDonald's to buy your family a meal, okay? You're on your journey home. You've been traveling all day. The kids are in the car. They're unsettled due to hunger. They're uptight due to fatigue, okay? You're standing in a queue, you just want a Big Mac and a Happy Meal and get back to the car. Some scruffy-looking guy okay, walks up to you, Nick. Okay, says, excuse me, mate, you got $2 so I can get a meal for my kids? What are you thinking? Why doesn't he go and get a job? Doesn't he feel any shame? I would never do that. So what do you do? You turn around. Or you say in, in your polite, you know, middle-class tone, I'm sorry, mate, I don't carry cash. Okay? And you go and purchase your Big Mac. What should you have done? What should I do? What should I do? I'll tell you, friends, we should stop. Here's an example. Say, look, mate, I don't have any cash on me, but look, I'd love to help you. Hey, what's up? Are you hungry? What do you fancy? 
What can I buy you? A meal? How many kids you got? And whilst you're standing with him in the queue, tell him about Jesus. How everywhere he went, he ministered to needy kids. Look, look, mate, I love you. Do you, know, do you know, I'm passing through town, but I've got a tract here. Can I just give you this? And whilst you're having your meal, why don't you have a look through it? It'll tell you about something better than a meal. Tell you about eternal hope. Can you see the point? Jesus demonstrates that the gospel work of ministering to people must take priority. One more. You're on, you're on holiday, okay? Getting away from it all. You're having a meal. You're sitting at the table, and you can hear opposite you this woman going on, how her marriage is falling apart, how her kids are wayward, how she's suicidal, okay? How wish, she wished there was some hope. She wonders if there's a God out there on the holiday you're in the middle of your meal and so you just look down pretend to the wife don't look at her we've got to go to the concert it starts in 20 minutes and we've got to finish this meal and we paid 30 bucks for that steak no friends the meal has to stop doesn't it you have to you have to speak up Hey, I'm sorry, I overheard what you said. Do you know? I'm convinced there is a God and he cares for you. And maybe, just maybe, we're sitting on the same table today because Jesus is reaching out to you. Can I tell you about him? And about what he can do for your life. Can you see the point, friends? Peter writes, Peter writes, doesn't he? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always. Always. That means we always carry around a gospel track. Or an invitation card in our pockets. It means that we rehearse situations whereby we can stimulate gospel interest or we can answer key evangelistic questions. It means that we have a contingency plan in case we encounter need. It means that sometimes you have to stop the sermon and first feed the hungry. We mustn't forget that there are people out there. Jesus, when he's faced with a predicament in full flow of his preaching ministry as a preacher of the word, he never forgot that there were people out there. When he encountered that need, he stopped, he ministered to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you, and sent him away, healed body and soul. The challenge is this. May we... Likewise, both preach Jesus and show Jesus, serving the gospel in ever, whatever situation we meet. Look, every one of us last week faced multiple opportunities to do ministry for Jesus. I wonder how many of those opportunities we were too busy for, too in a rush for, too 
disinterested for. Here's the thing. There's a brand new week starting today. May God give you and I grace to put the gospel first. And as important as preaching is, to be prepared to put tools down and minister to need when we encounter it. We mustn't forget that there are people out there. That's what a gospel-shaped community looks like. Amen.